0: stand for the reading of God's Word the scripture this morning is from John chapter 6 verses 1 through 14 sometime after this Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee that is the Sea of Tiberias and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. The word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is not only uh, inspiring and therapeutic, but these are the words of eternal life. Thank you that we can uh, hear what's on your mind, what's on your heart when we open the scriptures. Lord, speak to us today through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this series, we're examining how our souls influence our hearts and minds. Now, when it comes to spiritual matters, the soul is an early adopter. It's like a church business meeting. When the leadership felt led by the Holy Spirit to propose a new idea to our congregation in Edmonton, there were people who responded almost immediately. They were the early adopters. Then there was a group that was resistant because it's a new idea. We've never done it that way before. Initially, they were against change because it's a proud Baptist tradition. But within about a year, they were ready to give it a try. Then there was a small paramilitary group that reacted with outrage. No way. Never. One man even said, if you want to put a carpet in the sanctuary, it'll be over my dead body. Maybe that's why there was a lump in the carpet. (laughs) Some have skeletons in their closet. We swept ours under the rug. And this group had perseverance because... Later, they would say, I told you this was a bad idea. Now we have to pay to clean it. Eventually, however, most of them, not all, but most of them begrudgingly gave in. They were the late adopters, or maybe in one case, the late, late adopters. Now, the soul is an early adopter of the radical suggestion that we should let God control our lives the soul immediately recognizes that that's a great idea. But our heart doesn't agree. It's resistant. Because the heart, well, wants what it wants. And God is an imminent threat to my proud tradition of selfishness. No one tells me what to do. And our mind can find all kinds of reasons to resist this proposal. I don't know, can God be trusted? What about the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition? And this, does this mean I have to believe that Jonah swallowed a whale? Our mind can find all kinds of excuses. Maybe next year. I'm just too busy right now. I don't feel like it. It often takes years for our soul to convince the late adopters. And sometimes we even have to go through heartbreaking experiences before we're ready to give up control. Sometimes we have to make some disastrous mistakes before our minds realize that we need divine help and guidance. Well, with that in mind, we want to look at John chapter 6, where we have a documentation of a great miracle. Thousands of people are following Jesus because they saw the miraculous signs he performed. And they come to him on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And there's all kinds of excitement and enthusiasm and healthy buzz. And of course, wherever you have a religious gathering, the number one question, the most important question is, when do we eat? There would, uh, or where would Christianity be without food? It's really the fastest way through, to anyone's heart is through their stomach. And so Jesus performs another miracle. He he uses a boy's lunchbox containing two small fish and five buns. I hope at least one of them were gluten-free. But he multiplies this meager amount so that it feeds over 5,000 people with leftovers. Twelve full baskets. Going to have to ask Lisa if this ever happens at a church potluck supper. You ever have more at the end than you had at the beginning? I mean, this is a real miracle. And the reaction of the crowd was favorable. They were not only satisfied, they were impressed. Verse 14 says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. He's the one. He can do anything. Nothing is impossible for him. Thousands of people. So his ministry never had this much momentum. In fact, the next verse tells us that they intended to install him as the king of Israel by force. They were so pumped, they were ready to take on the Roman army. They were so convinced that Jesus Christ could make Israel great again. These people were definitely early adopters. They were sold, no doubt about it. But Jesus wasn't really interested in a coronation. He was there to face a crucifixion. So in verse 15 it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. He wanted to get away from his fan club. And later that evening the disciples go down to the lake and set off by boat to the other side to meet him at Capernaum. But this new fan club that Jesus has would have been following him on Twitter, but they didn't have Wi-Fi, so they searched everywhere, and finally they also found him at Capernaum. And in verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, Jesus detected that their enthusiasm was deficient. Verse 27, do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Miracles really only have a temporary effect. It's like bread, after you've eaten, you're going to get hungry again. You're going to need more. And if you've experienced a miracle, well, you want an encore. It's like my grandson. After I amaze him with sticky notes and rubber bands and fiber optics, he will ask, Papa, what else you got? What do you mean? That's, you always want something more. If you're looking for miracles, you'll always want more. What's next? That's why the important thing is to transfer our attention from the miracles to the master, from the temporary to the transcendent. Do not work for food that spoils, for the temporary, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Isn't that great? God says, here's what you need to do. Jesus says, here's what you need to do to, to do the work of God. Believe on the one he has sent. Put your faith in Jesus. And this is where the mind comes in. Salvation should involve our soul, our heart, our mind, and also impact our bodies. And it's our soul that it usually initially makes us aware of our need for Christ. And then our mind becomes convinced to believe in him. And then we accept him into our hearts through faith. That's often how it happens. Not always, but exactly the same. But that's how we become believers. And of course, Jesus is not compartmentalized. He is Lord of all that we are, heart, soul, body, and mind. And the Holy Spirit, when he fills us, overflows. But the mind has an important role to play in our salvation. So Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. When we were at university, back in the day, this was way back when I think the last stegosaurus was disappearing into the tar pits, we got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now Power to Change. And they stressed apologetics, which is the intellectual aspect of defending the Christian faith against doubt. And one of our main textbooks was Evidence that Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. It's a brilliant book. In fact, Josh would travel all over North America, visiting universities, and he would debate some of the top intellectuals of that generation. And he would invariably win those debates. It was a lot of fun being a Christian in those days. And we would spend countless hours talking to students about reasons for believing God exists. And the fact that the Bible is the most accurate and reliable historical document we have, and the compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we would discuss creation versus evolution, and purity versus promiscuity, and the fact that Jonah did not swallow a whale. It was really the other way around. And it was all very interesting. And many became Christians because they were convinced and they believed. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. But in some cases, the effect was only temporary. Where's Patrick? Oh, uh, I think he was last seen chasing some blonde wearing a miniskirt. How can apologetics compete with that? And I began to realize, you know, it takes more than logic and intellect and arguments to bring someone into the kingdom of God. Because what happens when you experience a tragedy that breaks your heart? You're not going to keep going simply because of the ontological argument for the existence of God or the fact that someone found the Dead Sea Scrolls. It takes more than mental assent to fully and totally surrender to Christ. Because there are some very good arguments for Christianity, but there are also some very good arguments against it. And it usually ends up in a stalemate. And that's precisely why Jesus prayed in Matthew 11:25, 25. I praise you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the learned and wise and revealed them to the simple. To little children. Verse 29 again. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And believing, obviously, means more than just what happens in our minds. Jesus discerned that the faith of these people was deficient. So he decided to unfriend some of his Facebook fans. And the next section contains some of the roughest terrain in the gospel. It's not for those who have weak stomachs. We don't have time to trace the teaching in detail, but I want to fast forward to the most difficult part. A lot of the discussion is about food, the multiplication of the loaves and fish, the manna in the wilderness, the living bread. And all of that points in the same direction. It points towards Jesus Christ. So in verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread... He will live forever. That's okay, but now it gets weird. Be careful. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Wow. That's in the Gospels? That's utterly offensive to our minds. That's worse than Trump. Somebody should have proofread this text and simply deleted this. This is This is bad for business. In fact, in verse 60, it says, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They were offended. Why would he say that? Well, one thing is that Jesus certainly didn't make it easy for his followers. Maybe he had to offend them because they were following him for the wrong reasons. He knew it would never last. They would never go the distance because there would be even way more offensive things to come. And I think that's one of the problems in our generation because Christianity is currently operated by the marketing department. There are many churches that are trying to appeal to people by accentuating only the positive aspects of the scriptures. And there's many things about Christianity that are extremely positive. But there's also some, some stuff that could be offensive. And we try to avoid that. So we don't talk about judgment. We have a, a hard time pronouncing that word s- s- what, what, what is it? Ooh, wow. Sin? People still talk about that? And we cannot mention that forbidden place, can't talk about hell. Ooh. Did I say that? I'm sorry, did I offend anyone? In Campus Crusade, we used to say, the Great Commission is not, go into all the world and be nice to everyone. You see, it takes a lot more than that to reach the lost because before you give them the good news, you have to tell them the bad news. And there are some aspects of our faith that are very offensive to the mindset of the world. What do you mean you don't accept gay marriage? Everybody does. What's wrong with you guys? So while Jesus had his moments of popularity... In the end, he was so offensive that they crucified him. And that was a majority decision, an overwhelming majority. And some of them were even probably among his previous followers. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, The Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. This is offensive. You know, it was great back at university when Jesus was popular, and the Bible was respected, and Christianity was cool, but that's all disappeared. According to the Prime Minister of Canada, and the former leader of the opposition, and the Governor General, and the Premier of Alberta, Christianity is offensive. I mean, to claim that all have sinned and are facing judgment and will be condemned in hell unless they find a religion, any religion, right? No, that's not right. Unless they turn to Jesus Christ for salvation alone, that is so offensive to our contemporary mindset. And that's why it takes more than our mind to become a Christian. From this time, many of his disciples turned back And no longer followed him. They couldn't get past the offensive things that Jesus said. It was just too weird. Now, of course, we know he wasn't speaking about their eating habits. He was presenting a spiritual truth. What bread is to your bodies, Jesus is to our souls. And has his broken body and shed blood brought us forgiveness... So our faith in his sacrifice brings us salvation. This is our spiritual food. It's all about Jesus. Everything points to Jesus because salvation is in him alone. Which is so offensive, so incredibly offensive to anyone who believes they can earn their own salvation by sincerity and saving the planet and recycling and shoveling their neighbor's sidewalk. And let's face it, many of us have also been offended. I've been deeply disappointed by God numerous times because I had my heart set on something and I didn't get it. Or my mind expected something that never happened. We've all had to deal with disappointments. And so the question is, why are we still here? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Verse 67, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. See, that's what Jesus was looking for. That's what was missing among the multitudes that were walking away, shaking their heads. Lord, to whom Shall we go? That's a good question. If you were to give up on Christianity, where would you go? What do you think? Where would you go? If you are someone who is all in, you can't answer that question. You just can't. Peter did not have an exit strategy. He had left everything to follow Jesus. There was no alternative. It was all for Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? Well, Peter, what about the Pharisees? I mean, you could wear a robe and be revered, and and you'd be the most spiritual person in the room, and people would move aside as you walked down the the street, and, and you'd be given the best seats at the banquet. Lord, where should we go? What about the Romans? Top of the food chain. Get out of my way. You're under arrest. Talk about power. Or maybe a tax collector. Imagine having a license to just collect money anytime you wanted. Or what about fishing? You love and enjoy fishing. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He didn't have a plan B. Now, one of them did have an exit strategy. Verse 70, then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of of the twelve, was later to betray him. Judas had an exit strategy, but Peter didn't. Lord, to whom shall we go? So why are you staying? Well, Peter might say, I'm staying because you have the miracles. You're so entertaining. Never a dull moment. It's not what he said. Or I'm here because of the wonderful fellowship. I mean, there's Andrew and Bartholomew and and, and those other guys. What a team except for maybe John and James, they're a bit too ambitious. But I'm here because of the fellowship. Is that enough? No. A lot of people have abandoned the church because someone said something to them that was deeply offensive. And they said, that's it, I don't need this, I'm out of here, I'd rather go golfing. And you too have met some toxic believers with sulfuric tongues. And you still have some scars of, because of what somebody said to you. But you're still here. You're still here. Why are you still here? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's not because of the fellowship. It's not because of the miracle. It's not because it's income tax deductible. We're here because of his words. His words give us life. They're like fresh oxygen on a polluted planet. Now Peter didn't understand everything Jesus said and neither do we. Sometimes truth becomes more clear over time. As we mature, as we grow. But Peter knew that he could never live without those words. Not after his very being was dependent on them. It's his words that give life meaning and purpose and hope. We'd be utterly lost without those words. Psalm 19 verse 17 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Once our soul gets revived, comes out of that coma, it needs to hear the words of Jesus Christ. No one else has these words. They're like, I mean, everything else that we hear is just opinion, it's theory, it's politically correct propaganda, it's fake news, it's alternative facts. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then all your dreams will come true. Well, that's not exactly what he said. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Once our minds are transformed and we get used to these words and they become part of the way that we think, we can't live without them anymore. Of course, to be transformed in our minds means we have to rigorously, rigorously retrain our minds to think as God thinks, not as man thinks, not as Justin Trudeau thinks, not as Rachel Notley thinks, not as the Governor General thinks, not as Saturday Night Live thinks, not as Jimmy Fallon thinks, or Seth Meyers or Stephen Colbert, but to think as God thinks, He has the words. Of eternal life and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts that's why paul says in 2nd corinthians 10 we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of god and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to christ that's what a transformed mind looks like that's what's happening in a transformed mind. We demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And we do that so that the faith that is rooted in our soul grows and germinates in our hearts and blossoms in our minds and bears fruit through the work of our hands. That's why we will never leave, because this is our life. We have discovered abundant life, eternal life, and every time we hear his words, our soul comes alive. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. How many times have we come to church with a flickering faith? Our heart is cold, our mind is cynical. It's just just a pilot light is on. And then it happens. You hear the words through worship, through scripture, through the teaching. And the burners ignite. And there's life. And there's warmth. And there's victory. And you've overcome because you believe in his word. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter was all in, committed to Christ with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And that was his final answer. It's all about Jesus. All for Jesus. That's why the number one thing the enemy wants to do is to keep you away from the church, to keep you away from the Bible so that you are not exposed to the word because he knows if, you, if he can get you away from the word, you will die. Your soul will be in a coma. You need to have constant exposure to his words. It is the very oxygen that you breathe. It is your life. Don't let anything ever interfere with your experience of Jesus Christ through his word. Father, we thank you so much that uh, in this world that has so many different ideas and opinions and theories and so many misleading propositions, theories, that the truth is still here. After all these centuries, we still have your truth. Thank you that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. And that's the very basis for the life that we have as Christians. This is why our soul is revived. This is why our heart Hungers for you. This is why our mind believes in you. It's because of the word. And thank you, Lord, that that's something that we can experience so freely in this country. And may we never take it for granted. May we spend every opportunity to experience your word and the one who is the word of God, Jesus Christ. It's all for you.